And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Uh, good morning. It is the uh, second best day of the week as we get ready to wrap up this week. Of course, it's Thursday's edition of The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, here this morning. So lots of consternation yesterday about the inflation number, right? So I uh, got this inflation number out yesterday. Big spike in inflation. Stocks sold off a lot sharper uh, than a lot of people expected. But nonetheless, that's kind of everybody trying to figure out you know, what's going on with inflation. So I thought we'd go through a few charts this morning. Um, it's just, and I'll explain them. So if you're in your car driving to work this morning, don't worry. Don't worry. Not going to leave you out. Going to explain everything. But if you're watching our live stream on our YouTube channel, Facebook, you know, uh, basically just about everywhere we stream, uh, which you can find those streams on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com. You can actually see the charts as we go through this. And of course, if you uh, later want to come back and visit the show, go to our YouTube channel. And uh, if you're in your car now and want to see the charts later, uh, feel free to uh, join our, our YouTube channel and uh, you can find all of our videos there we post every day. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about CPI. Uh, yesterday, CPI came out a lot hotter than expected. And of course, uh, this really got a lot of people concerned about, oh my gosh, you know, we're going back to the 70s. Relax. No, we're not. Okay, so <laughs> we're not going back to the 70s. Very different economic environment back in the 70s that fostered higher inflation, then combine that with the oil embargo. And then that's where you had a, kind of a, a big spike and inflation that we don't have that economic environment today we're not 80 percent manufacturing anymore we don't have rising trends of economic growth uh, growing at eight percent nine percent we don't have rising wages at eight nine percent just don't have the environment for them. we're in a deflationary environment long term yes we are getting some inflationary pressure short term because of what the economic shutdown and five trillion dollars worth of stimulus not surprising if you throw gasoline on a fire you're going to get inflation and that's exactly what's going on here but is it sustainable that's the big question right you know is this inflation going to last months weeks years that's the big issue right so if we're going to have rising inflation for a very long period of time that's a different story very likely this inflation is not going to last long for a couple reasons one and when I say not long, I don't. I mean a few months. <laughs> this will last a few months, uh, but this is because largely because of the base effects from the shutdown, right? So we had a big deflationary uh, plunge back in 2020. So we had very suppressed prices because of the deflationary pressures of the economic shutdown. Now we, since we compare CPI, inflation, all that on a year-over-year -year basis, we're now getting this problem or this catalyst of a year-over-year -year change against those very low numbers previously. Those base effects so that will work its way through the system here over the next couple of months you're going to start to see this number this this change in base effects begin to come back down uh, towards reality last and also just remember that inflation can't grow much faster than economic growth over time so of course we are having you know, probably three to four percent economic growth this year by the time we get to the end of the year on a real inflation adjusted basis that means that inflation at three or four percent 
right in line with economic growth, what you would expect. Now, next year, we're going to start to drop back down to sub 2% growth as all this stimulus works its way through the system and leaves. And so when economic growth starts to drop back down towards 2%, inflation will eventually go with it because that's the deflationary pressure of debt deficits and uh, economic growth over time. But certainly in the near term, huge spikes in inflationary numbers on a month over month basis. Again, not really surprising when you have so much impetus of a reopening of the economy, people running out to spend money, especially in the restaurants and those type of areas. And that's really where all this is showing up. So, you know, when we look at this kind of headline versus core, where's all that inflation actually really showing up from that inflation is really showing up in some of the areas that you would that you would expect people running out with a stimulus check going hey i need to buy a used car used car prices had a huge jump over the last month as people are rushing out then i you know we've talked about this on the show there are no cars to buy because of the semiconductor shutdown so you can't buy a new car and if you're going to buy a used car you're going to pay through the nose for it right now so you better damn well need a car because you're going to be stuck with this thing for a while because once the this uh, semiconductor shortage goes through and and you basically go back to normal prices in cars you have a deflationary drag in car prices in the future as supply starts to catch up with demand semiconductors come back online uh, if you happen to have a bunch of old classic cars sitting in a garage somewhere, time to sell it. <laughs> You're, you are going to make a mint on old classic cars right now because people need cars. Uh, but other, other places too, where are we seeing inflationary pressures the most? Well, it's coming from the areas that have been shut down and people are going back. Food away from home, lodging away from home, airlines, motor cars, used vehicles. That's where all the inflation is. Right, it's all these things that were shut down, had no activity for the most part, and now that we're opening those back up, well, people are starting to buy that stuff, and, and the airlines are going, hey, pff, we're gonna raise fares. Remember, we were talking about March, April, May, June last year, he's like, you could book a flight to Florida for like four bucks and a box of peanuts, right? And now you have to pay for it. So, you know, now prices are coming back up. It's all showing up in these inflationary numbers. Again, transient in nature, this will go away. Hotels, auto use, auto rental cars, again, you know, if you want to rent a car, I told you about my experience. There are no rental cars. All the rental car companies sold off their vehicles, um, you know, uh, to try to stay in business during the pandemic. Now, a shortage of cars leads to, guess what? Higher rental prices. Uh, again, seeing this really kind of flow through all across the system. And, and again, we had this big deflationary push well below trend growth trend in, in 2020. So expect to have inflation a little bit above trend here over the course of the next couple of quarters. Again, as we work through the stimulus and the economic reopening, the, ex the expanded unemployment benefits, all that extra spending power will start to fade. And towards the end of this year, we're gonna start to drop back towards our growth trend line that CPI runs over time. And so, you know, and this is one of the things the Fed continues to work with is that there, the Fed has a, a path trend that they want of about 2% inflation. That equates to what? 2% economic growth. Where are we gonna be back in 2022? Back to 2% growth. So that's where all this will eventually settle out as, as we get back to longer term trends. And because of the problem of the transient na nature of stimulus and support, that's why also a lot of these price pressures, because of the shutdowns, because of the supply chain blocks, because of all the other issues that are going on in, in the system, 
that's where we're going to see this. And of course, this inflationary push is also pushing the, the Federal Reserve to potentially start tapering and potentially start hiking rates. You hike rates, that slows economic growth, that also quells inflationary pressure. So again, this is why all of this towards the end of this year, we're going to start to see the issue of, of you know, potentially slower rates of inflation as we get there. So let's talk about the markets here real quick before we get to the break. Um, big decline yesterday in the S&P, of course, sitting right on the 50-day moving average. Going to kind of flirt with that today at the open. Money flow signal still very, very low here. We haven't triggered a money flow buy signal again. We were talking about this a couple uh, last week saying, hey, we're really close to triggering a buy signal. Haven't got it yet. And again, not surprisingly, market's still under pressure. A little bit early yesterday, I was talking about, you know, we had this rebound of the NASDAQ yesterday, thought we would get a buy signal on the NASDAQ, not quite there yet. Again, still on a sell signal. NASDAQ sold off some yesterday. We're getting close. We're not there yet. We are going to get a rebound in the markets, but there are some very concerning issues going forward. So very likely this next rebound in the markets, wherever we get it, and we will probably get this uh, starting next week. We'll get a rebound in the markets that is going to be a selling opportunity, most likely. Now, we'll judge that as we go. But there's some things that are concerning in the markets, at least short term over the next couple of months, that may lead to another decline after a short term rally. But we'll get into that. Michael Leibowitz joining me this morning. we got a lot of stuff to get into, a lot of stuff to unpack about inflation, what's going on in the economy, the Fed, all that. All coming up here with Michael Leibowitz right after the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. We're going for the best on our next Candid Coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff, Saturday, May 22nd. The best accounts to save, the best accounts to invest. Investments are one thing. The vehicles you place them in can be quite another. Which are the best for you? Learn about the best types of accounts to save for health care, retirement, and emergency reserves on our next Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, Saturday, May 22nd. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the this morning. It's Thursday, which means we get to hang out with Michael Leibowitz this morning, uh, you know, live from his bunker up in Maryland. So whether you like it or not. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so just uh, real quick here, um, at the beginning of the show, I just went through a lot of charts out this morning um, on in the inflation number yesterday. Lots of concerns about that big spike. You know, a lot of this area, a lot of the inflation, as I was discussing, is actually coming in areas, not surprisingly, um, when you throw five trillion dollars worth of stimulus in the economy and you have an economy that's going from basically shut down back to open hey guess what people are going to raise prices um, you know airlines hotels lodging food you know all those things are going up um, you know and of course big concern yesterday is this, this was a very hot inflationary number that came in yesterday but not really 
you know, that surprising. I mean, we kind of should have, you know, economists didn't expect it to be as hot, but, you know, the economists were basically never right anyway. But we really shouldn't have, you know, not been surprised by the strength in the number, considering we just gave everybody $1,400 checks. Everybody's getting an extra 400 bucks a month for unemployment benefits. You know, we've already talked about the fact, you know, people can't hire anybody because everybody's sitting at home collecting the $400 benefits. So it shouldn't be surprising that we're seeing inflationary pressures at this point. And plus, combine that with the fact when we do the year-over-year comparisons, you're getting a huge jump because of the deflationary numbers we had during the shutdown. I mean, uh, we were talking about airline uh, fares a second ago. And, you know, I remember back in April and May of last year, you could book a flight from Houston to New York for like 12 bucks. You know, and now it's back to normal fares because we're open again, right? So. You know, this really shouldn't have surprised anybody, but the market acted a bit surprised yesterday. Right, right. So one of the questions I got it, I get is, how do you know this is transitory? And look, to be honest, we don't. Like, we're just looking at data and judging it week by week, month by month, and trying to figure out what's going on because we or anyone else has never seen this. But here's, here's, here's what we really have to consider. Supply lines are broken. So the supply of all products not all products, but of many products, they just, you know, the producers can't get them out quick enough, whether it's problems at their own factories, plants, whether it's problems in procuring the commodities or goods that they need to produce their goods, or whether it's trying to get those products to market because the shipping lines and the train lines and everything else Mm -hmm. is broken, or the harbors, the ports where where the goods come into have problems, or trucking once it gets to the United States. And remember, we're a huge importer, so we're relying on the whole world to to send us their goods and and to send us their goods and commodities so supply is broken supply is not nearly what it could be at the same time demand is on steroids Mm -hmm. right so in economics 101 we learn supply and demand equals price well demand is first of all unemployment rate is still six percent but it's come down sharply from where it was Everyone is getting checks. Our tax payments were delayed another month, so they're not due till Friday, I guess, Mm -hmm. or Monday versus April. So when you go back and look at April's data, no one had to pay taxes if they didn't want to. Uh, So there's there's a lot of factors driving demand, plus just the pent-up demand, right? Everyone was locked up, and now they're spending money. They're going out to dinner. they're, They're going on vacations. They're booking flights, hotels. So you have this massive imbalance you're going to have inflation. And look, everyone knew this was coming. I don't think anyone understands the degree to which it's coming. And it'll happen next month, too. But the question is, and the question I think that we probably spend more time on than anything right now is, is it transitory? What is transitory? Is that a month, two months, a year? Because at a year, it's not so transitory anymore. Right. Right. And what does that mean for markets? Because it's having... That daily question of inflation and how transitory is it is wreaking havoc, not necessarily on market levels in general, but the rotation between inflationary and what's called inflationary and deflationary sectors. Yeah. You know, a couple of things, too, is, is that, you know, part of this is we've brought stuff on ourselves as well. I mean, we, we kind of set this up over the last few years because. We've gone to kind of this idea of of maintaining because we're so easy to to manufacture and ship things overnight. And we've gotten to this kind of on demand delivery is that, you know, we've been running historically much lower levels of inventory than 
you know, we have, you know, way back in the past, back in the, you know, early 80s and early 90s, where it took, you know, days and weeks to get things done. You know, nowadays we do a lot more of this just-in-time delivery. We're almost just manufacturing, right. you know, that we the order hits, we manufacture it, we ship it back out the next day, and that's all fine until you do something where you shut down the entire production chain and all of a sudden all those orders that are still, even when we were shut down, there were still orders coming in, right? I mean, there was still some right. activity in the economy and those things just backlogged. And and so you're right. Now, and, and the point is, is that, you know, we'll get through this eventually, right? So the semiconductor shortage will eventually get resolved. We'll get through the supply chain backlog and we'll get supply chains back intact. These could take a while, Right. I mean, it's not going to solve it overnight and it's not going to magically wake up next week and go, oh, we got everything fixed. Guess what? You know, we're right. back. But eventually we're going to wind back up with, you know, kind of a, an interesting snapback to this, because as we start getting supply chains back online, now there's all this demand coming in. So manufacturers are going to ramp up production to produce all this stuff at just about the time that all the stimulus runs out, whether it's the $1,400 checks or the weekly unemployment benefits, and then demand's gonna drop off and you're gonna wind up with a supply glut, you know, later this year or, or sometime next, early next year. Right, and I would argue that we're probably close to, if not past, peak stimulus. Mm -hmm. So the point at which those funds are being used from the government, because those checks went out, what, a month and a half, two months ago? Right. right. So a lot of that has been used or is being used. Uh, a lot of people are getting new jobs, so that money's being used. But, uh, you know, we're getting very close to peak stimulus or past peak stimulus, meaning that the demand side equation is going to start easing off a little. At the same time, all these supply lines fix themselves mm -hmm. and goods are coming out to the market. And you know that, like for the lumber producers, they're trying to produce as much lumber as they can today. Because the price, you we know what the price of lumber. You can lock in the price of lumber for six months from now or a year from now in the futures markets, right. and they are significantly lower than what they are today. So they're heavily uh, incentivized to create as much as they can today, not for tomorrow. Right, and then again, that just kind of goes back to this. And and so yes, I think the real point about this is that you know inflationary you know the inflation push right now is likely transient not necessarily it'll be gone next month but over the course of the next 12 months as we start getting into you know again when we start comparing next year's inflation to this month's inflation all of a sudden it's going to like oh well inflation is not nearly as high as it is so it, so a lot of this is these year over year effects is one thing but then the other thing is just as we get back to normal economic growth which is not going to be 4 or 5% but closer to 2% because of the debts and the deficits and you know there's been a lot of hope that you know Biden was going to spend another couple of trillion dollars on infrastructure that now looks like it may be somewhere around 6 to 800 billion over the course of 10 years that's not that big of an economic impact um, right. You know, in, in this type of stuff. So, you know, there the the support and the stimulus for the economy is going to become much less over the course of the next 12 to 18 to 24 months. And and that's going to start to show back up and not only economic growth, but lower rates of inflation. Right. And, and you know, I've seen a lot of people. This is really interesting. They'll show technical graphs of stocks or whatever it may be, and they flip it. So it's upside down. And they say, what would you do, buy or sell? Right. And it gives you a different perspective. And, you you know, if something's going down a lot and you flip it, it looks like it's going up a lot. You may <laughs> say, I'd sell that. Well, then your answer to the technical question is you'd really buy it. Right. Right. So I think what the market's not appreciating is what we see today. If you flip it on its head, 
Mm. We're, we're going to see that to some degree in the future. There's going to be a big deflationary headwind whipping through our economy, you know, whether it's in the third quarter or fourth quarter, it's hard to tell yet. Right. But, uh, you know, it's almost worth looking at the supply demand lines for today, how they've shifted over the last few months, because they could shift right back very quickly and very powerfully <clears throat> in a very deflationary way. It, it, not deflationary, but very, very low inflation. Right. So inflationary rates of zero to zero to one percent. Again, the Fed's goal is two percent. Well, and th- and that does bring up another interesting point, though, because there are certain prices that are sticky. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that you know, there's been a lot of stimulus in the economy, so there's been a lot of demand, so people raise prices. Right. Food prices have gone up. Uh, you know, other, you know, com- commodity prices have gone up. And the, the interesting thing is, is that, and, and you can you can see this specifically with oil prices and with uh, specifically gasoline prices. You know, oil prices recently went back to, you know, $20 a barrel, but gasoline prices didn't go back to 58 cents where we were when a gallon, when we were, you know, previously at 28, you know, $20 a barrel, right? You know, gasoline prices remained well over a dollar or two dollars, depending on where you live. California, four dollars. But, you know, you know, gasoline prices, an example is that once we kind of get the economy used to a price, we never go back below that price too much. And, right. and so now that prices are going up on certain items like food, et cetera. Well, let's talk about shrinkflation as well. This fits right into it. Procter & Gamble, you know, right now, if you go buy a, a, a roll of, of uh, paper towels, you're getting fewer sheets than you did before. Well, even if prices come back down, I suspect that Procter & Gamble isn't going to go, well, let's add those 20 sheets back. They're going, hey, if I keep those 20 sheets off, I can increase my profit margin, <laughs> you know. So, you know, I think there's going to be one of the things that we're going to be dealing with is this: a lot of these price hikes are going to be stickier. And at the same time, you've got, you know, lack of stimulus, you know, and, and you know, le- less you know, employment benefits and things like that for people to deal with. So their incomes are going to decline, but the cost of living is going to remain elevated. And that may be a problem for the economy and deflationary pressures in 2022. Right, right. And, and I, I think what's important here is, Lance, we're talking about some major forces that are affecting the economy, prices, the markets, everything. And many of these are unprecedented. And maybe when we come back, I can talk about my latest article, which just talks about how big these factors are and how we need to treat investing in markets and just predictions in general. Well, when we come back, we'll do that. We also need to talk about, well, how the Fed's going to respond to all of this as well and the markets. And we'll do that when we come back with Michael Leibowitz. Don't go away. You better do what you can. Don't want to see no brother be a macho man. You want to be tough, better do what you can, so beat it. But you want to be bad, must be a leader. No one wants to be defeated. So now we got to strong and so You're listening to The Real Investment Show. We're going for the best on our next Candid Coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff, Saturday, May 22nd. The best accounts to save, the best accounts to invest. Investments are one thing. The vehicles you place them in can be quite another. Which are the best for you? Learn about the best types of accounts to save for health care, retirement, and emergency reserves on our next Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, Saturday, May 22nd. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Baby Shark. Baby Shark. 
That's right, we're back into uh, baseball season, aren't we? <laughs> uh, we finally got the Baby Shark song back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Brent. Been uh, saving that up all year. So uh, what do you think about the Nationals this year? Eh, not so much. <laughs> Still hockey season so, up here. So basically, it, it's it's basically not Baby Shark. It's more like Baby Minnow this year, maybe. Right. So we'll Friend, see. I'll work with you on a new walk-up song. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we'll find something with guppies in it. There you go. <laughs> so, all right, uh, Mike, so just talking a little bit about inflation. A um, couple of things to get into. Obviously, we do need to talk here about, you know, the Fed, because the Fed is going to have to figure out some kind of response, you know, or, or what, what their response is going to be at this point. I mean, you know, they're so focused on trying to maintain stability in the markets. And, and this is something we've written about before, you know, talking about the stability instability paradox is that the Fed is dependent on stability. There, in other words, what the Fed is dependent on is that nobody in the markets go pushes, goes pushes the big red button and starts dumping everything because that impacts confidence and, and kind of undermines the whole premise of monetary policy. Right. So they're kind of in an interesting situation. So we definitely gonna talk about that. But before we get there, um, let's talk about your article yesterday and kind of your premise with that. So this was like almost pure advice. You know, we're always writing about different things. Some is explaining some economic factor, talking about what's going on in the markets. But this I consider just be pure advice for what we're dealing with. And I and I kind of started with an, a weather analogy. And the the gist of it is, is that in normal times, weather forecasters are really good with the one to two day, three day forecast, but they're really bad when you look start looking out seven days, 10 days. And, and they'll be the first to admit it because weather is dynamic. There's a million different forces changing the weather and they have to predict all those forces and how they interact with each other and things that just start happening. You know, up front can materialize, things happen. So I kind of equated our market economic environment to the weather and i let off with something like there's a huge growing deflationary hurricane right off the coast and at the same time there's a warm inflationary front barreling towards us this is not normal mm -hmm. right there's nothing normal about this and the point of it was that we have these massive inflationary pressures massive deflationary pressures all kinds of odd things, right? Pent up demand. We shut down global economies for almost a year. Their stimulus, both fiscal and monetary, is uh, almost unprecedented, uh, you know, again, around the world. I think people's behaviors are different in this recession because of the pandemic than they are in a traditional recession. And, and the point is that predicting this is really hard. It's impossible because there are so many factors and it's not like looking at today's weather where, OK, it's there's no fronts in sight. It's supposed to be 70 today. They're going to get it right today. But there you know, when you start looking out a few weeks, it's 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 really, really hard. And the point is not to be stuck on a bullish view, a bearish view on an inflationary view, a deflationary view on any kind of economic view, but to just simply, like like we say in our tagline, be the eagle, soar above, soar above the markets, reassess on a daily basis what's going on, and it, just don't get wed to any view. And, and that's really hard 
and it but it's really important and it couldn't be more important I think than today because these forces driving the economy driving the markets are not only powerful because they're incredibly powerful they're unprecedented mm -hmm. right and and that's the the message it's that no one no one should be confident hubris is the the hubris of the fed to think they know inflation is going to be transitory is crazy so <laughs> the thing is just take it day by day be willing to change your view be willing to adapt be willing to hedge yourself markets could melt up from here significantly mm -hmm. markets could melt down significantly have views but be willing to change them and be very adaptable Right. So, well, and I think, I you think know, no, the bottom line is no one knows what is going to happen. And that is ever more true today than it's been in, you know, regarding economics and markets than in the last at least 10 years. No, and I think that's, you know, that's absolutely right. And again, you know, the Fed may be very right about this being transient inflation. But again, you don't know what the impacts are of an, of high inflation in the short term. Right. And again, right. Because we've never had a situation where we've had the government sending checks directly to people, creating an artificial demand in the economy. And and now economists are going, oh, well, look, we've got inflation in the economy, and they're acting like this, this demand increase is now a permanent thing. And this demand is going to stay there permanently. And this economic growth that we're getting from $5 trillion worth of stimulus is now a permanent thing. In other words, people will just keep spending even after the money that they were given to spend is gone. And, and the reality is, is that once that money's gone, there's nothing left to spend for 80% of Americans already living paycheck to paycheck. So, you know, this idea that, and in fact, this was Monday's article talking about a recent analysis from First Trust saying, you know, hey, this is this is a permanent recovery. It's it's hard to make that that statement when you simply look at the fact that most of this recovery, yes, some of it is organic because we're reopening the economy, but a big chunk of this recovery and a big chunk of the recessionary drawdown that was replaced by all the stimulus, particularly in the financial markets, is illusionary. And and right. at some point we're gonna have to get back to just the actual underlying fundamentals of the economy. And that may be coming much sooner than we expect. Right. But, you know, the flip side of, of that is we get another $2 trillion fiscal stimulus bill. Yep. Somehow they get Joe Manchin to agree, and there's more checks going out, right? And Absolutely. supply lines can't get up quick enough for whatever reason. Um, so, I mean, there's just uh, these factors that, that we can't predict. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we have our views. We state our views. But I just, you know, I just think it's very important to note that we're flexible. And I think we're more flexible today than at any time in the past because we understand that that it's it's very hard to see what's going to happen. I, I think the better way to put that is uh, we're flexible, more flexible today because we just simply don't know. <laughs> well, no, Lance, Lance. We have 100%. no idea what's going on. I just give up. <laughs> so. We give up. I'm just saying I think no one has any idea what's no, going true. on. It, so it look true. at the the daily weather forecast. Stop looking out three weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so let's talk. Let's switch gears real quick to the Fed because I also want to get to employment as well. We had a question come in on YouTube this morning asking about you know what employment numbers the thing to look at. Um, but let's talk about the Fed here real quick. So um, after the uh, jobs report came out on Friday, which was you know very disappointing, uh, we saw the 
kind of the the pressure on the Fed to potentially hike rates slip a bit by looking at, you know, we look at Fed funds futures, those declined. After the inflation report yesterday, that decline was completely reversed. So, you know, there still looks like the Fed may be getting pushed towards potentially having to hike rates maybe by the end of this year. But again, hiking rates um, is a function of an action that slows economic growth and quells inflationary pressure. So, you know, they're walking a very tight line here. If this is indeed transitory and you began to hike rates, you're going to wind up putting a bigger deflationary pressure on the economy um, at precisely the wrong time, which is going to be the time, as we were talking about earlier, is that the stimulus runs out and supply chains are back online and we've got an inventory excess and, and, and that's going to impact the economy and slow it down as well. So, you know, the Fed's got to be very careful here. You know, if they make the wrong move too early, they could really exacerbate the situation and potentially throw the economy right back into a recession. Right. And look, the Fed's dealing with some really tough data, too. Right. That the unemployment, the miss in the in the unemployment, in the employment number versus what they're expecting was three times a normal payrolls number. Mm -hmm. Then you get CPI that is is much higher than expected. On Friday, we're going to get retail sales. And I've been hearing some whispers that that could be well below expectations. Right. And the Fed, look, the Fed is is there. The, the Congress has given them a mandate essentially to manage uh, employment and manage inflation. So the inflation, I, I would say, objective, they, they met their objective. They're back over 2%, but employment is still weak. So that's why employment is kind of such a key data point to watch here. Uh, and they now have a third mandated goal, which is it's not mandated, a third goal <laughs> they've created, which is financial stability. Right. That means which, higher exactly. And that, you know, that's the other thing, too, is that you know, let's not forget with all this. Yeah, the market's been under pressure here. Some of the economic data is not definitely not great, but they're still buying one hundred and twenty billion dollars a month. And, and look, whether or not you want to agree, even though there's a very high correlation between the increase of the Fed balance sheet and the increase of the market. So whether or not you want to agree that or not that quantitative easing winds up in the financial markets, it gets there psychologically. So in mm -hmm. other words, as long as the Fed is doing QE, that's a that's a put for the markets. And so investors are going to buy. So, you know, we need to also just keep that in the back of our mind is that no matter what's going on with right. economic data there, the Fed is there and they're going to be doing whatever they can to support asset prices. Because, again, if, if asset prices tumble off the cliff, that erodes economic confidence and that provide that takes away the entire ability of everything they're going to try to do, because that's going to lead to deflationary pressures in the economy. So, th again, back to our statement, you know, they're running a pretty tight uh, they're walking a very tight rope right now as to what they can do policy wise. And even the smallest mistake could have big consequences. But, hey, when we come back from the break. We had a question on, you, on our YouTube channel this morning asking about, well, which employment number is the, is the right one to look at, right? Is it U6? Is it U3? You know, what should we be looking at? Because, you know, when you start talking about full employment, you know, we had full employment when Trump was in office. We were in the threes on full employment, yet the labor force participation rate was at the lowest level that we had seen in, in the last 30 years. So, you know, what actually is full employment? What should we be looking at? Talk about that with Michael Lee. Let's come back from the break. Don't go away.
You're listening to The Real Investment Show. We're going for the best on our next Candid Coffee with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff, Saturday, May 22nd. The best accounts to save, the best accounts to invest. Investments are one thing. The vehicles you place them in can be quite another. Which are the best for you? Learn about the best types of accounts to save for health care, retirement, and emergency reserves on our next Candid Coffee with Ratliff and Rosso, Saturday, May 22nd. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. This is a public service announcement brought to you by The Real Investment Show in conjunction with Black Rifle Coffee Company. Things you won't hear Texans say. Who needs all this land? Sorry, I'm late. Charging my electric car. No worries, brother. Soy burgers are well done. Line dancing looks ridiculous. I know. Have you tried twerking? Buckies. I've been meaning to switch to a more vegan whiskey. Things you won't hear Texans say. We now return you to our regular program. And welcome back to the show this morning. It is, of course, uh, 6.48 as we get this Thursday edition. Michael Lee was joining us this morning. So, hey, let's do a, a quick round of topics here talking. Let's start with the employment number. Which one is the, in your opinion, uh, is the mo- I have I have my own personal opinion, and so I'll tell you mine too. But what is, in, in your opinion, what is the most impl- important employment number to look at when we're actually looking at employment in the economy? I, I think it's the BLS monthly report. Whether you know, probably the U three, and it's not necessarily. That I think it's the most accurate. I just think it's the one that everyone tracks the most, follows the most. Mm-hmm. Um, the only interesting thing about it is. Now the Fed wants to use the U6. So the U6 is just a lot more inclusive than the U3. Yeah, and for years so, we've disregarded the U6 entirely because it never jived with the headline right. media of Yellen or Bernanke about full employment, right? Right, right. Now they don't want full employment because they want to keep the pedal to the metal, so they need the U6, which shows, uh, what is it, like 9% now? Yeah. Unemployment, something like that. So I think between the U3 and U6, are probably the most important but you know we can also look at adp we can look at a bunch of surveys uh there's other gauges out there what do you think well and for me you know the one i look at is i look at full employment relative to the labor force population right and the reason that i like full employment relative to the labor force is that that shows you know look in order to support a family you've got to have a full-time job it's kind of hard to support a family of two or three or four or however many people you got in your family you know working a couple of part-time jobs it just doesn't really work well what you need is a full-time job that provides benefits and all those type of things if you take a look at full-time employment um, we've been stepping down ever since the 1990s. We hit the peak of full employment, and that was true full employment. We had full employment of people working full time jobs. Uh, after the dot com crash, that stair stepped down to a lower level. It stair stepped down again after the financial crisis. Now we're at even a lower level. Only about 50% of the population actually has a full time job. So right. that's, and that's, of course, not surprising that you have one in three households on some form of, of social welfare. 42%, this is a shocking number, right? Because of all the stuff we've been doing with the government and all these bailouts and that, 42% of real disposable incomes right now come from social transfers from the government. So, you know, it certainly doesn't suggest that we're anywhere near, you know, we, we may be looking at a U3 report of, of, you know, 6% unemployment, which means that 94% of the population has a job, 
But if you take a look at any other statistics, labor force participation rates, take a look at full employment relative to the population, take a look at 42% of social welfare transfers, hard to suggest we're anywhere near full employment. Right, right. And I, I would say we weren't prior to the pandemic either. No, we weren't. Yeah, these, right. that, and this has been kind of the underlying uh, lie. But to your point, though, the Fed's been keeping zero interest rates. You know, QE's been going on now for 12 years. And we use these kind of U3 measures as an as a gauge saying, oh, we're we're we're, man, we're smoking right along. Well, if we're you know, if we're sub five percent employment, which is typically what you consider full employment, then why didn't you raise rates starting in 2013 and 14? And why didn't you taper QE or stop QE altogether in 2013 and 2014 when the economy's growing? You've got full employment. I mean, there was no reason to be doing all these things except to support the stock market and the financial system and the banks. Right. So. Exactly. <laughs> so, anyway, but okay. that's why the I, Fed story is always changing. I know. And that's why I'm off my soapbox now. Uh, Elon Musk, uh, interesting uh, comment out yesterday and uh, tanking a little bit of Bitcoin this morning. He's got the, the Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin uh, posse. <laughs> A bit upset this morning, uh, saying that basically he's going to stop accepting Bitcoin uh, to purchase cars. So you could previously use your Bitcoin to go buy a Tesla if you wanted it. Um, Interesting, though, he said now he's not going to do it. And he used the excuse, he says, that Bitcoin is not environmentally friendly. There's someone, you know, we we talk about this proverbial tap on the shoulder. Uh Yellen got the tap on the shoulder a week or so ago when she... uh, made a few comments that the fed may actually have to taper or tighten or whatever mm-hmm. and then she comes out three hours later and says i don't know what i was talking about that was wrong <laughs> right well i think elon musk got have some tap on it he got a tap on his shoulder about bitcoin right i don't know who or what or how yeah. everyone knew that bitcoin is a waste of energy you're it takes an incredible amount of energy to create bit to mine for bitcoin mm-hmm. And it's, uh, you know, some people argue that it's there's benefits to it. I don't see it. Right. And and he, what he came out with last night is that Tesla will not accept Bitcoin. But he owns Bitcoin. But he owns Bitcoin, and he's been a huge promoter of Dogecoin. Like, let's call it what it is. It's not Dogecoin. It's Doggy Coin. That's why there's a dog on the front of it. Is that? Da, yeah, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a dog on the front of the coin. It's okay. logo. It's okay, doggy dog coin. Point. And but see, that sounds ridiculous, right? That's it, it, you know, that's a scheme, right? Got to so, make it sound a little exactly. So now it's Doji coin. So it Doge doesn't sound. Point. It doesn't sound the fact that you're actually wow. buying a scam to start with. Anyway, the point is, is that I, you know, it's a bit hypocritical when you consider. He says, okay, it uses too many fossil fuels to generate a Bitcoin. Okay, well, great. Creating a Tesla vehicle, which is primarily plastic, you know, rubber, plastic, you know, all the the sheathing around the wires. And, of course, not to mention the cobalt mining, the lithium mining, which pollutes water systems and slaves, you know, young children in Africa to mine the cobalt and destroys the planet because of the strip mining. Don't worry about the fact that probably a Tesla has a bigger carbon footprint than actually any other vehicle made on the planet. And what if you had to stick the coal into the gas tank instead of the plug? Bingo. There you go. So it's a bit of a hypocrite critical statement, right? And and I think really what this is, is I think that was an excuse. And I think what he realized is that accepting Bitcoin to purchase your vehicle is a very risky outcome. There's some dealerships here in Houston that do it as well. And, and the risk is, is that, you know, 
Michael Leibowitz walks into a dealership today and purchases a vehicle in Bitcoin today at, say, $50,000 for the vehicle, and tomorrow there's a 20% price drop in Bitcoin. You know, for the dealer accepting the Bitcoin that's dependent upon that money to pay for production and manufacturing and employees, et cetera, so forth and so on. That risk of volatility, because cryptocurrency is so volatile versus the U.S. dollar, it really doesn't make sense to take on that type of volatility risk that you can't hedge. It's it's not like you can do a currency hedge, really, uh, against that kind of volatility that makes a lot of sense. As long as it's going up, it's great, but the risk to a dealer or to a manufacturer is the downside risk of that, you know, being down 10% a day or 20% or 30%, which has happened in the past. And and I think that's really more the reason he does. Somebody tapping their shoulder says, dude, this really isn't that smart of a deal for a manufacturer. Maybe right. not do this, but he had to have a reason outside of that. Because if you, if you say that reason, now you're really a hypocrite, right? Well, and the funny thing is all the ESG funds were buying Tesla too. Right. So forgetting all the environmental issues with actually building a Tesla, Tesla was buying Bitcoin. Right. So there's another paradox. I know it's it's it, it, it's 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 all a meme, right? So we're we're there. All right, uh, one other Life's topic here. <laughs> exactly. One other topic here. Hey, let's talk about the fact that uh, you know, uh, real quick our money flow signals on the NASDAQ have been very weak. We stepped in a little bit early on adding a small position of the NASDAQ to our portfolios here just for a rebound, just for a trade. This is a trading opportunity. Uh, market still under pressure here, but you know it looks like we're setting up for a nice rebound in the markets. Doesn't mean that's going to last. That doesn't mean we're going to all-time highs. But you know we're still you know that money flow sell signal that we've been watching is as been right so far. We jumped in a little bit early trying to anticipate a turn. That didn't happen. A little bit of sell-off yesterday, so markets uh, were under pressure. Looks like we may get a little bit of a turn today, but we still haven't triggered that buy signal yet. Right. No, and and I was just looking before the show, and the level that our, the, you know, our oscillator created yesterday after the close is almost on par with where it was in March of 2020. So that doesn't mean that the market can't go down a lot more. Mm-hmm. Again, we're still well above the 200-day moving average. There's plenty of room to the downside, but from a cyclical perspective, there's a bounce coming, right? It mm-hmm. could be a three-day bounce that gets you four or five percent, and then falls all the way to the 200-day moving average. Right. But there's a bounce coming, and, and I think uh, that, I, I today, think that, tomorrow. Yeah, and I think that's key too. Is that you know, if you take a look at the Nasdaq, it looks like we're in the process of an early kind of a formation of a topping pattern. Got a nice left shoulder back in March. You got this head that's going on right now. If we do rally instead of lower high, then, you know, the risk is going to become whatever these recent bottoms are that'll be the neckline. And a break of that could certainly see lower market prices. And again, there's there's certain reasons to think that we could certainly be in that process of creating a short-term top in the markets. We've had a huge run um, we've talked about the fact that maybe in June, uh, probably that we would get an alignment of our weekly sell signals as well. And we could see a 10 to a 15% correction well within the norms. You know, people are like, oh my gosh, a 10% correction is the world coming to an right. end. 10% correction, 15%, well within the context of norms in any given year. So we've had a huge run. So a bit of a pullback wouldn't be a surprise. So I think it's important to understand that whatever rally that we're getting and, and potentially looking at and, the re- and what we're buying into right now, uh, on the expectation of is something that we're not going to keep for very long. And I would just also add, stocks are priced for perfection. Perfection is very hard to do given all that those uh, 
weather features I talked about earlier. So, you know, it's a sign of confidence that I think is very misplaced because a lot can go wrong here, too. And on that news, uh, there's still a tiger loose in Houston. So if you have to see a tiger around, please call the authorities because they're searching for him. (laughs) So only in Houston does this happen. (laughs) So, all right, wraps up the show for the day. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Michael Leibowitz joining me, of course. Get by the website. His article on the website now, uh, realinvestmentadvice.com, along with our latest newsletter, our YouTube videos, three minutes on markets and money. You'll find it all there at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow for Friday's edition with Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff on The Real Investment Show. Have a great day. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for The Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.